Hello and welcome to the Gifted Podcast. I am your host Neeraj Mulani and in the Gifted Podcast I speak with elite athletes as we try to challenge the misconception that athletes are just some people who are talented or gifted with special abilities at birth. Every week I am joined by an elite athlete as we try to break down what it truly takes and means to be an athlete. If you are an aspiring athlete or just a casual sports fan, you will definitely enjoy this podcast as I get candid with athletes about their journey, their achievements, moments of heartbreak and most importantly, moments of hard work and perseverance. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of welcoming the first ever Jamaican to compete in skeleton at a Winter Olympics, Anthony Watson. Anthony had a dream to be an Olympian right from his childhood. and it was this dream that drove him to pick up skeleton after an injury prevented him to progress as a track and field athlete in the episode we talk about his transition from a track and field athlete to a skeleton athlete his roller coaster experience leading up to as well as during the 2018 winter olympics and his aspirations for the next olympics so let's jump right in welcome anthony to the gifted podcast today we're really excited to have you today how are you doing I'm doing good. Thank you so much for having me today. It's a real pleasure. So, what are you getting up to these days? How has the the lockdown uh been for you? Has it affected your training regime? Uh yeah, definitely. It hasn't been the easiest transition, especially being an athlete where you need gyms and like public access to a lot of things where a lot of people have to be and when all of that was locked down and shut down, it kind of had to it kind of took a little while to get resettled into a uh, routine and a program but things are things are back to a i want to say a little bit of a normal now now that gyms are open but sad thing is, is i'm still not in one because they're only open to current holding members right now and not people that don't have a membership right and so, so there is a lot to discuss and know more about you as an athlete and as a person so you know let's start right at the beginning shall we what was your childhood like where did you grow up um in, in terms of you know the city that you grew up were there any early childhood influences uh that you believe set the foundation for you to become an athlete i grew up in a, a small town uh called vineland uh it's in southern new jersey and um around here if you had dreams bigger than like going to college or like getting a career or like being married and having a family everyone looked at you like you were crazy so i mean at the young age of 6 i remember specifically that was during the um atlanta olympics when i was watching michael johnson run i initially wanted to get in a track and field but like coming from i went to a small christian school of about um i want to say 150 kids so very very small graduated in a class of 54 as opposed to like the normal high school that they have like you know 6 700 kids that graduate from their class so very 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 tiny um but growing up uh wasn't the easiest i mean like i come from a family that didn't really have much financially but the beautiful thing about my parents was that they never once made it about what we didn't have their view and opinion was always that with the little that we did have it was enough and more than enough to share with other people that had absolutely nothing so I grew up not really ever feeling like uh there was uh, anything that I couldn't do but you know like the older you get it was just harder trying to figure out ways to actually go about doing that so um, as far as like academics and school went um there was really nothing that really interested me to keep me in school 
Um, so I did do the school bit for a little bit. And then um, afterwards, you know, like through high school, through college, you know, like I was just an athlete that loved competing. And so that's what I love to do. And so uh, that's um, kind of where I am right now because of all of that. It's just been my sheer passion for athletics and for everything that um, I've wanted to be involved in. Yeah. And how did you get into track and field? You know, especially when you said that you always relied on sports, uh, even as a child. What were your early drivers, you know, going into track and field as uh, or athletics per se? Well, as a kid, I just loved being faster than other people. So, I mean, like, you know, growing up in a small school, it was just like, you know, gym class and like other days where like we'd have to do races and running. And, you know, I just like being able to like get to the end faster than everybody else. And, you know, as I got older, my parents were like, well, why don't you try track and field? So that's kind of how I was introduced into track and field. And throughout high school, I ran, but because I went to a very small school, we didn't have a team. We had, a, it was just a club. So right. there was literally like four of us that would run in like track meets all throughout like high school. And then in high school, I joined a junior Olympic team. So um, got to travel around the United States, you know, do relays. And, you know, I was a sprinter in the 100 and 200 and was getting a lot of momentum behind me in those early years. And then had an injury that stopped me from competing, competed in college and track and field for a little bit. But then um, that injury just kept coming back. And then when college was finished for me, um, one day I just really didn't really want to go into anything normal. So I sat down and went through every single USA team page at the time that had tryouts and bobsled and skeleton was the only one that ever had, that had any. So right. I sat and I looked at myself and I was like, well, I guess if I can't make it anywhere else, this is kind of, you know, the avenue that might take me to an Olympics. So then the rest is history after that. And how does a background in track and field give you an advantage in bobsled is there is there any advantage in in terms of having a particular physique or uh, is it something that you start from ground zero no, no matter what background you have well you need to have a, a base so uh, for skeleton, because I do skeleton, that's when you lay on your stomach going head first down the ice track. Um, for bobsled, they normally take power athletes that have normally played football, have done wrestling or have done like power sports like rugby, where they can like move a lot of weight and do it quickly because a bobsled is like four or 500 pounds. And then a four man bobsled is like close to 700 pounds. So you need like big strong men to be able to push that thing and then weigh it down and then take it off the track once you cut to the bottom. And for skeleton, um, they like people that have had like, uh, they like people that had backgrounds in track and field or sports that involved running or speed. So like soccer or cross country, you know, like there really is no specific physique to have for it. You just need to be, ha you just need to have speed. So I came into uh, the U.S. Uh, team trial combine uh, weighing like, I want to say a hundred and, you know, 60 something pounds. And, but you know, like I was a sprinter, so I was able to run really fast. And then I scored really high and the testing that they gave us. And then from there, they said that, oh, well, you scored really high in the combine. So we want to invite you to a school. And a school is where they take you and they start you to learn what a sled is, how to maintain it, you know, like the ins and outs of it. So they gave us school sleds that were really old. Then they take you from a significantly lower part of the track. They don't just send you from the top. So you spend about a week there. Then you spend the next week moving up to another start. And then by the end of that week, you go from the top. And then after the end of the school, 
the uh, uh, head development coach was just like, you're everything I'm looking for in an athlete. He's like, so we want to invite you to the elite development program. And so I trained and competed with Team USA for three years, three seasons. And then um, after meeting the Jamaican team, they recruited me to come and compete for them. And that's how I was introduced to them in that sport because I have dual citizenship to Jamaica. So that's, I don't really want to say there's like any specific type. Um, they have a combine where they uh, make you do all of these physical tests of speed, agility, and strength. And if you pass, then they invite you to see how you do in the actual sled. Yep. And, um, you know, like you mentioned that this is, this was one of the only sports that actually had tryouts, but I read up a little bit and it also seemed like an, uh, like a very expensive sport to compete in. Um, so it often means that athletes end up working side jobs to support their sporting ambitions. And it then brings up a, a dilemma where, you know, how do you tread the, the fine line of wanting to put in the maximum hours that you can and truly becomes great at your sport? but also having to trade off some of those training hours to work a side job so you can support your sporting ambition not go broke um how do you you know tread this line and what sort of challenges do you face uh, in terms of you know financially supporting your uh, sporting ambitions it's been it's been really difficult um i won't lie um so the a majority of us rely heavily on sponsorships donations and funds that we raise ourselves or that are given to us to continue training um, because it is really expensive. Like to be a bobsled pilot and who's in charge of a team, it can cost anywhere between 70 to a hundred thousand dollars a season because that is that that's your sled that you have to pay your men. You have to, you know, pay for transportation, room, room and board for all of your teammates, uh, transportation, you know, like a vehicle to transport you all around something to transport your bobsled around for skeleton. It's more along the lines of like maybe 34 to like $45,000 a season. Right. And from there, um, you know, like it's the same thing because like I sometimes have, you know, made good friends with bobsledders that will let me ship my sled, my skeleton sled with their bobsled to the next destination. But when I didn't have that available, I would have to fly with it on the plane. <laughs> and just to give you an example, like during season, you have to literally when season starts, you have to pack for about four months on the road and you have to do it limited because you can't have like too much because like along the way you'll need stuff that you pick up and you add to that. So like for average for me, I travel with two suitcases, a carry on a book bag. So that's four bags and then my sled and then my sled equipment. So when I get to airports, that's like a big chunk of the finances right there because just for one direction, you know, my sled, I'll get hit on four charges. I get hit on an oversized charge, then overweight, then sporting equipment. And then, um, then a then an oversized bag. So I'm just like, my sled alone will cost me almost a thousand dollars one direction when I'm traveling that way. And so it's been a lot of athletes have a hard time doing that because I really last year decided to commit to being a full-time athlete, but I was broke. And that's the that's the stalemate that a lot of people find themselves in because it's either I'm going to train and dedicate all my time to training and become a superb athlete, but life and finances and figuring out how to survive is going to be hard, or I'm going to work and save and I'll have money. But like when it comes to competition and training, I'm going to be one of the mediocre athletes. So it's a catch 22 at sometimes it feels because like, unless you have consistent people that are investing into you, there's 
it gets a little difficult to balance the both. And so a lot of athletes right now try to do the whole thing where they work part-time and then like train. And then it's just like, cause that's what I'm doing right now, training part-time and working part-time because you know, I need to eat. <laughs> but at the same time, it, it makes training a little bit difficult just because, you know, some days, um, you know, you can't make it to the gym and especially during COVID, you know, and there was no work and no gym. So it was just a, it was just a little rough spell. Right. And also I think then it puts the athlete in a position where they also need to learn on the job while they, they'd be their own managers, uh, you know, just trying to reach out to reach out for sponsorship. They, a lot of them, a lot of the time they are their own uh, representatives as well. So there is a lot of roles that they are trying to juggle and trying to also keep their sporting ambitions alive and train as many hours as they can. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot rests on the athlete. Like we're like, when you commit to a sport, you're responsible for everything at that point. Like your federation can only do so much because for them to do more would mean that they would have to pay for it. And since the Olympics are considered amateur sports, no athlete receives payment unless you come from like a European country where the sport that we compete in is actually considered professional. So there's really nothing to be made from it. And, um, you know, you really have to have a passion for sport and a love and a, and a dream that you can't let anybody kill to like make you continue because chasing my Olympic dream, you know, like there were days that I had absolutely no money to eat with. So, and the money that I was raising slowly, that was coming in it literally came down to daily decisions of am I going to eat today or am I going to like go to training and I was like I was like I'll get like a small bag of chips and then I'll go to training you know and I'll just hope that something else happens after that I've been homeless you know I've been stranded in other countries when my money ran out and in other places here in the states and stuff and it's a very scary thing um you know but seeing where I've gotten to and knowing where I came from and like it, it's taught me a lot about myself you know like I can approach anyone and talk you know and I can I can really network some athletes really struggle with that you know because I mean like it's a very humbling thing when you have to like go to people and ask for money nobody really likes doing that but at the same time it's like you know it's either do it or or like stop yeah absolutely and um and there is nothing that can actually you know train somebody on that front, it is something that you have to always, you know, prioritize your sporting ambitions and then do everything that you need to do to, you know, keep it alive. And, you know, like you also mentioned that there are so many dilemmas along the way that you need to keep making decisions um, in terms of, you know, supporting your ambitions and also keeping yourself financially stable. Um, how do you train, um, you know, leading up to the Olympics or any other uh, season per se how does an athlete uh, prepare physically and more importantly you know mentally for for these kinds of competitions um everyone has their own way of doing their type of preparation and training i think universally uh during off season everyone is getting stronger and everyone's trying to get faster because during season you're only in certain places for a certain amount of time. So that time is dedicated to training, studying the tracks, learning your lines, learning how your equipment works on this type of weather conditions. If there's higher altitude, how to like run without getting winded. If it's like lower altitude, you know, like how to maintain. And so during season, you're basically maintaining everything you've built up into your body and your system during off season. So off season, this off season, I've spent a lot of time, you know, just like cutting down on weight because COVID, 
made me slip into a small bit of laziness when I was just like, ah, this isn't going anywhere. Nothing's open. So I gained about 20 something pounds. And then when I stepped on the scale one day and I looked and saw, I was like, dang, I'm really heavy. You know, it took me two weeks of hard work and whatever to like lose 18 pounds to like cut down to like where I am right now. So um, as far as mental preparation goes, everyone does everything different. Some people try meditating. Some other people try, uh, you know, I guess isolation where they just like sit and like other people just like try uh, doing like fun things like coloring like I had a friend of mine that like likes to color when he's stressed out and then other people like you know we all hang out together um me I mean like I'm a Christian so I mean like I spent a lot of time in prayer I spent a lot of time reading my bible you know like to kind of calm myself but as far as like um mental prep it's just like these are things that no matter how many times you've been there every single time is is a is a is kind of like a new time facing it because you're here in a different scenario now so it's like is it going to be the same as last time or is it going to be the same as this time and then something different could happen that could totally change your perception on it so i approach every day as like an a day to learn something new but going off of what i already know so that i'm not going in blind and then um i just have fun you know, like my nickname on the ice is high five because every single time I'm walking past someone, that's what I'm giving everybody. And so like, um, because I, I honestly believe that you have to have fun with what you're doing, because if you don't, then it becomes something that becomes so stressful that you don't enjoy it anymore. And so I've seen a lot of people leave because they couldn't handle the stress or the stress literally made them do something stupid that ruined their chances or other times it was financial because you've had a lot of good athletes that were Olympic medal caliber that just couldn't afford it anymore. And then they had to step away. So, you know, you have all of these variables that you're constantly thinking about every year. And especially during COVID now, because now we're being told that season is going on, but nobody's going to be ranked. And like, there's going to be no points this year. So it's basically going to be a pointless season, but they need to have it because if they don't, then the IBSF is broke. And then there is no more bobsled skeleton for the Olympics. So knowing that now, now it's just like, cause I missed the season before because of finances. So the year of the Olympics, they're going off of, they're going to go off of the 2019, 2020 season instead of 2020, 2021. And so that's how everyone's going to be ranked. And so like my mental gauge now is just like, well, if I'm blessed to come back on the ice, I'm basically going to be starting at the very bottom and I have to work my way up to the top spot till I get into a second Olympics. But I've been there before. So I know that I can do it. It's just like trying to like mentally charge myself up enough to be like, all right, I'm ready to commit and go through with this. So right now that's kind of where I'm at like mentally. But like I said, it's just like, as far as everyone's mental prep and like physical prep, it's like everyone's body's different. So everyone has certain things that are tailored to them to make them better athletes. But overall, it's just like all of us kind of do the same thing. It's just how you get about doing that. Right. So in fact, you know, um, like you mentioned that, you have been to one of the Olympics already and have achieved one of your life goals. Let's talk uh, about that a little bit. Um, leading up to that Olympics as part of the qualifications, um, you ranked 79th basis your performance and initially missed out on the, the 30 automatic spots, you know, for the, the winter Olympics in skeleton, but eventually did, did make it there getting the slot. What transpired there and what was going through your mind, you know, waiting out that time, just trying to know if if you're gonna be there or not yeah um i uh had a had a rough 
start to that season. So I think when I started that season, out of 136 athletes, I was ranked 103rd. So through all of that hard work, I moved my way up. And so like what happened was, was that when I got to 78th, um, the, the, the people that automatically qualify for the Olympics are the top 60 athletes. But like countries like Germany, like the USA, like uh, Canada, they had six or seven athletes in those top spots. So how you figure it is just like um, if the Germans have eight athletes, but they only have two Olympic spots. So I'm just like, you can have like 10 athletes from one country in there. So I was just kind of like being like, okay, if I like filter and do my math right, I was like, Germany will only send three. Russia can only send three. The U.S. can only send two. I was like, Canada is going to send three. I was like, so that eliminates like 12 people already. So I'm moving up. And then what happened was I got stopped right at the end of the bubble. So there were five athletes in the bubble. It was Israel, Italy, um, Luxembourg, myself, and Ireland, and Norway. Six athletes fighting for, what is it? Six athletes fighting for five spots. Because that's what, that's what everyone was doing the math at that point. And so I was like, all right, well, I was like, I, I said, I, I'm not going to get upset. I was like, I'm going to be content knowing that if I don't make it, I got so close and it'll, it'll, or it'll spurn me to like get to the next winter Olympics. And so Norway took their spot. And then because the Austrians had two spots available, but like how it works is just like you can qualify for the Olympics through the Olympic standards. But if you don't meet the qualifications of your country, then they don't send you. So Austria, their rules to send their athletes were if you don't finish in the top 10 in at least three World Cup races, you don't go. Same thing with same thing with Switzerland. And then same thing, I think, with two other countries. So that took five spots away and then shot everybody up. And I was number six. So out of all those five spots, I was like, well, I was like, I'm on the bubble. It's, it's no biggie. It's whatever. And then Russia, because of the whole scandal that they went through of like the, na- the state, though, nationwide um, doping, they, um, their gold medalist from 2014, they banned for life. And then two weeks after the Olympics, they're like, okay, the ban is lifted. So they basically just, you know, blocked him from going to an Olympics. So Russia had the, had the opportunity to send three athletes but they only sent two. And so countries have these kind of structures in place because they want to know that if they're going to have their, their athlete represent them in the Olympics, they're going to do well. The last spot was supposed to go to Luxembourg. And at the very last minute, because he was a 46, 47 year old guy, yep. Luxembourg was just like, eh, we don't really want to send anyone like that there because we don't know how it's going to go. And that was a good friend of mine, the guy from Luxembourg. He was always someone that was really polite and friendly. We got along really well. And so um, they didn't send him. Luxembourg has passed up on their spot. The IBSF has offered the next spot to us. We've accepted it. Congratulations, Anthony. You're going to the Winter Olympic Games. So-and-so will be in touch with you to talk about travel details and whatnot. And that whole entire two weeks, everybody – was blowing up my phone, being like, what do you think is going to happen? Do you think this person, do you think this is going to happen? Do you think this is going to go this way and that way? And um, what are your predictions? And like, what are you thinking and feeling? I was just like, I said, I can't say, but I said, all I know is that I've accepted the fact for myself that if I make it, I will be grateful. And if I don't make it, I will still be grateful because I know that I have the potential to get there because of, because of how close that I got. And then 
once I qualified, I thought everyone was going to be happy for me. And then I started getting threats and like all these messages from everybody being like, you don't deserve to go. Um, you know, you stole this person's spot, you know, like you're a traitor. We hope you crash, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, whew. So, but that's how I got in. So, I mean, like that, that whole, that whole two weeks, cause it was two weeks because they were supposed to know the end, the cutoff by January 19th. Then we were told by January, January 12th was the first cutoff where it was supposed to be final. But because of the whole Russia scandal and Russia only sending two athletes, then more people being said that they weren't sending athletes and they weren't going and stuff. Um, the spot that was given to me was, was called a reallocated spot, meaning that this country didn't want it. So it was up for grabs. And so people kept telling me, they just kept calling me the reallocated boy because I didn't really earn my spot. It was just given to me. And I'm like, well, I said, if I paid for it and then I received it, then it'd be given to me. But I said, you know, I actually had to work to be in this position to get it. So I was like, all of you guys can, you know, screw off. And then um, January 24th was the day that um, people told me that uh, that was going to be the final, final cutoff. So, like, I kept that to myself because everyone was like, bro, you're not going. Just give up and just, like, accept the fact that, you know, it's not happening. I was like, well, I was like, we still have until this date because this is the date that this has to be decided by. And they're just like, well, it's, it's not important, blah, blah, blah. And so when that date came and I got the last spot, everyone – kept telling me after that that oh the spot's gonna get taken away from you you need to go talk to your federation blah 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 and it was all people that were jealous that i were that were normally beating me regularly but this season i just edged out i just edged them out in the right races and then got ahead of them in the points a little bit so then they kept telling me it's just like we're just trying to look out for you we're trying to like you know make sure that you are you know get what you want i'm like no you're not i was like all of you are just jealous and you're putting seeds of doubt in my mind because you don't want me to have this spot because you think it belongs to you because after that they were just like you do know that if it was the racing standards from last year i'd be going and you wouldn't and i was like well luckily it's not last year and i was like it's just this year so i had to deal with all of that plus all the hatred and the bias that i was getting from my own federation that season too it was just it was just a whirlwind so when i finally like sat there and heard that i was going to the olympics for like an hour before i even went downstairs and just went and told my family the good news i just like laid in my bed and was just like crying i was like i was like it paid off all those days of not being able to eat anything or just focusing on training and, you know, like almost like going home, but like not giving up, they, they all paid off. And then I went downstairs and told my family that it was a big old party from then on. Those are two intense weeks, man. Uh, all full of speculation, just not knowing how, you know, what's going to happen, I think. But, you know, uh, richly deserved. Uh, I, I wouldn't be calling that because you still had to perform perform to get there so yeah. um so you know having now you know making it to the the olympics um let's talk a little bit about your federation your experience with uh, with the jamaican federation you obviously were you're making the history representing jamaica and the caribbean uh, you know into the sport of skeleton and what was the reception like at home and you know from the federation the reception at home, I want to say, was a lot better than the reception that I got from my federation because um, from the start of the year, the federation was mainly concerned about the bobsledders because that's their brand is Jamaica bobsled. And then when I came along, 
they legally had to change the name to Jamaica Bobsled and Skeleton. So essentially I was the one that was like throwing the uh, wrench in the wheel um, in a lot of their uh, marketing and advertising stuff. So they, from the beginning of the year, would have all of these meetings about like season preparation plans. And then whenever I would ask or like talk about like, you know, what was supposed to happen, they would ignore me. They wouldn't answer me. They wouldn't say anything. And so I was basically clueless the entire time. So I sent them a message early being like, hey, if I have to, I was like, I'll pay for everything myself and find a way to do it because I said, I'm asking all these questions. And I said, no one's answering me. No one's saying nothing. And then they, that's when they finally responded. They were just like, oh, if you want to pay for everything yourself, that's fine. Go ahead. We won't stop you. And so, so that was the kind of premise that we started with. And then, um, you know, all season, because I was American, everyone thought that I came from a wealthy family when I really didn't. My family's been like pinching pennies and scraping the bottom of the barrel since I can remember. We've never been in a position where we've had a lot. Everything's just been on a prayer and, you know, like on faith. But, um, you know, the reception from the country was a lot of people were curious about like, oh, you know, Anthony, you're the first Jamaican here, here and here. And, you know, like Jamaicans can be very loyal and supportive and they can also be your biggest enemies if you don't do well. So how are you going to handle that? And I was just like, well, I said, if nobody likes my performance, I said, I welcome anybody else to get on a sled and try and do better. So um, and then, you know, just the, this, the drama that was going on between my federation all year and stuff. When I finally qualified for the Olympics, I thought that it was over. But then the first message that they sent me after telling me that I qualified for the Olympics was that they weren't going to give me a coach at the Olympics. And I was like, I can't. I was like, I've been, I've been dealing with all of this nonsense all year. I was like, I finally do something good without you. And I was like, the one time I need you to do something good to help me, do, you know, succeed and, and do my best, you won't do it. And so I was like, uh, I was like, it, it was it was just nerve wracking and heartbreaking. And so I pleaded with them for forever long. And then then during the uh, Olympics, you know, their last kind of spiteful acts of, you know, resentment towards me where they were taking me away from the village when I should have been training and should have been like studying stuff to do these mandatory interviews that when I arrived to these sites they'd be like who are you and I'd be like I'm, I'm Anthony I'm the skeleton athlete they'd be like oh well we asked for you but they said that you weren't available so we just scheduled the bobsled team so I'd literally have to sit there and watch the girls bobsled team be interviewed and get all the camera time and do whatever while I'm sitting in the background and so like halfway through my Olympic experience, I just wanted to come home. And then my coach who had helped me get to the Olympics called the Olympic committee because I'm not sure if you're aware, but in 2010 in Vancouver, a luge athlete from Hungary, from Hungary had never been to the Olympics, never been on that track and flew out of the track and died because he didn't know it well. So now the Olympic rule is if you've never been on this track, if you've never been in it to Olympics and you've never been to this country to compete or race at all, like your federation has to give you a coach. So my federation took my coaching credential to give it to somebody from the office in Jamaica to come to the Olympics and watch the girls bobsled race. And so I was just like livid. And then they tried pawning me off on a bunch of other athletes and their coaching staff. So I asked my friends, you know, just out of, you know, desperation, I'm just like, Hey man, I need a coach. I need this. And they're just like, bro, we know everything you've been through. We're sorry that you had to like qualify this way and that you've had to fight people the entire time to get here. But at the same time, this is the Olympics. 
and we can't we can't you know like sacrifice you know like our chances for wanting to do well to like try and make you do better than us and i was like that's understandable i said i get it i just figured i'd have to ask so they tried to partner me up with my best friend but my best friend has had his whole coaching situation situated from before he even qualified because he got into the olympics off the continental rule meaning that if you are the only athlete competing in this continent you automatically get into the olympics and people hated him for that because he was the first african ever in the sport of skeleton so he automatically got in and so you know and I, I felt bad for him because I was like, I'm not going to take away from his moment because my federation is being lazy. So when they asked, when I asked their coach, they were like, well, why aren't they doing this? And I was like, look, and I told them everything. So then they went back to them. And they said, look, we don't want to coach Anthony, nothing against him, but it's just like, he's done all this work and he at least deserves a coach. So my coach calls the Olympic committee. The Olympic committee calls me saying that. So what's the story with your coach? And I was like, I don't know. I was like, they they told me I'm not going to get one. And so, you know, I just, I don't really know what to do. So I said, I'm just going to come and do my best. And they said, well, here's your dilemma. Like they said, we'll talk to them and we'll get the situation. I said, please don't. I said, I've been getting in trouble literally all season for doing absolutely nothing. So I was like, if I actually give them a reason to like yell at me, I was like, it might be bad for me. And they're just like, well, let's put it to you this way. If we don't intervene and try to figure out a coaching situation, we're not going to let you come to race because we're not going to have another fatality on our hands. So I was like, oh boy. So when I got to the Olympics, two days after being there, I get pulled into a meeting and then they're just like, Anthony, we heard that you're doing all of this. And if we find out that you're the reason that we're getting embarrassed and called into all these meetings and we're, you're the cause of all this shit, we're sending you home right now. And I was like, I don't even know what you're talking about or like what you're doing or because I said, these people called me. I didn't call them. I said, I don't even know how they got a hold of me. And I showed them, I said, look, here's my call history. I said, that's a call received. I didn't make that call. I said, I don't even have this number in my contacts. Then when they couldn't blame me for nothing, that's when they kind of eased up and they're just like, you have the chance to make history, my friend, you have this and this and that. And I was like, yeah, I know. I was like, but it just didn't feel good. All of that drama stopped the day that my dad showed up. So you know, my dad is the reason that I was able to compete for Jamaica. So I was just having issues with the Jamaicans all week. You know, they were getting on my case and I just wasn't having it. So I was putting up a little bit of a fight, you know, just getting a little emotionally worn out. And then like my dad finally showed up. And then when he got there, I just like cried and like broke down. And so like we walk into the um, cafeteria to go and get uh, some lunch one day. And then um, uh, we're walking in and then my, my federation yells at me in front of everybody from across the room. And like, granted, this is a huge like cafeteria. It's the, it's an indoor football stadium that we're having our meals in. <laughs> and so all of that's happening. And then they're like, get over here. And then they're just like, they start yelling at me. So my dad steps in front of me and then they're just like, who's this? And I was like, and he's like, I'm his father. And so it was like privates to a four-star general. They all just started being like, Oh, Mr. Watson, we love your son so much. You know, he's so great. He's so amazing. All this stuff is happening. And, you know, like, we're so proud of him. And it's like, it's nice to meet the man who made the man. And it's like, you must be so proud. And then I just like, I had to keep everything contained because I was about to explode. <laughs> and then after that, my dad, my dad was just like, you, you guys better be treating my son well, because he's done a lot for you. And he's here representing you. So he's like, you make sure that, you know, you take care of him, that kind of thing. And then that's when it kind of subsided. <laughs> a little bit but 
that and then like on Twitter, all of the Jamaicans were like, "Oh, we don't see Anthony Watson anywhere. That's only about the girls' bobsled team." If I was Anthony, I'd pick up on, I'd get on a plane and I'd leave right now because obviously nobody cares about him. You know, like all this other stuff. So I was like, "That's the kind of stuff that I had to deal with all the entire three weeks that I was out there." <laughs> so and you know, I, I, I'm I'm sure that all this background implications and difficulties that you were faced with would. I don't know how would how would it and if it would affect somebody's performance leading up to the Olympics. But you know, at the Olympics, the the, the timing of your first three heats um, combined placed you 29th overall, preventing you from you know qualifying for the finals. Uh, what was your feeling at that time? You know, with your performance, how did you yourself rate your performance, having considered all the the, the background uh, problems that the federation had caused for you? Well, I tell people that at that point, um, I don't ever make excuses, you know, so I said I gave my best, you know, and like even the commentator said that, you know, he's having a good run. There were just certain parts of the track because I had very little experience on it. I was having a lot of trouble with and I didn't have a coach. So I was having a lot of issues trying to figure out how to get down safely, you know, and um you know, but I tell people like I, I finally opened up and was honest about it once the Olympics are over. And I think after like three months of just like decompressing and like, you know, kind of like talking through like all the trauma I had, I had experienced, you know, leading up to that, I had finally admitted I was like, I made it to the Olympics, but I was literally holding on by a thread by the time the Olympics were over. Like I had nothing. I had nothing left after I crossed that finish line for the last time. It was like I was holding on and holding on and holding on with everything I had. And then that third heat when I knew I wasn't going to qualify, I just decided to have fun, you know. But as soon as I crossed the finish line, I started, you know, like I just felt like this. You know, like when you have all that weight on your shoulders and you're holding it up as best you can, as soon as I crossed the finish line, I just felt crushed by all of it, <laughs> you know. And so I was just like – I tell people I was like emotionally, physically, mentally, and like I was just mentally drained, physically exhausted, spiritually like wrecked and like, you know, mentally just obliterated. But I was like, but I kept it together. I said, I kept a smile on my face and I kept everything professional and classy, you know, because I said, you know, I'm not going to embarrass myself, my country or my family, you know, like on national television by being, by being, you know, by acting out and being a fool, you know? So, um, all of that, uh, you know, combined with like how I was doing, um, obviously like I really wanted to do better, you know, and I'll always have that in the back of my mind, you know, could I have done better? But you know, when I sit here and really think about it, it's just like, look, I gave it everything I had. Every push I had was a hundred percent. There was never the time that I got down to the bottom of a track that I said, I could have done this a little better. It's just like, it was more like, I wish I could figure out how to not hit this wall and lose two seconds of time, you know? But, um, when I really think about it, it's just like I made it to an Olympic Games broke, homeless, and starving. So when I tell people now that I'm trying to help, help, uh, help have help sponsor me, it's just like now if you, I might, if I'm able to be fed, housed, and like have proper equipment, it's just like there's no limit to like what I could do if I don't have to worry about the basic necessities that like make traveling and competition like really hard. So. You know, I don't take anything away from it. You know, I don't look back as like, oh, I could have done this better or that better. It's just like once the third and final heat came for me, it's just like I just enjoyed it. 
you know, and I enjoyed every heat, you know, like the first heat, I was really nervous because I was the first one off the ice and the first one to start the race. So I tell people and I joke, I was like, Hey, for a small second, I was first place in the winter Olympics. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, something serendipitous did really actually happen at the Olympics for you that, you know, affected your future in a, in a significant way. And you'd mentioned this to me on our previous call. Uh, and you know th- that is now actually supporting your future uh, aspirations of wanting to be the at the second Olympics. Um, could you could you talk us through some of that uh, you know moment and how that came about? Well, like I said, this was um, before my dad had gotten to the village. Um, I was just having a really bad day. I had a bad day at training. You know, my federation was getting mad at me. You know, like I couldn't find any of my friends. I was in a big place where a lot of people were like super serious and I would found myself, I found myself just by myself a lot. And, And one day it just got to me. So like I just broke down and started crying one day outside of the cafeteria. Then a gentleman with a nice, you know, polite, calming voice came and he's like, my friend, you're at the Olympics. He's like, why are you so sad? And I just said, it's been, I said, this, this whole experience, I said, I don't think it's what I've wanted. And, you know, I kind of want to go home. And he's like, have you eaten yet? And I was like, no. He's like, well, come, I haven't eaten yet. Let's, let's go get some lunch and let's talk. He ended up being the president of the Puerto Rican Federation, which I happen to be half Puerto Rican through my mother. So when he heard everything that I had been through that year to get to where I got to and the struggles that I was facing at the actual Olympic Games, he was like, man, this is not right. You're half Puerto Rican. Why don't you come and slide for us and represent your mother's country in the next Olympics? And I was like, whoa. I was like, whoa, 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 man. I was like, this kind of, that's moving kind of fast. I was like, I'm here representing this country. I was like, at least let me see if I have a future the next season with this country, you know? And so, um, you know, but we talked and he was more of a support for me than, than my own federation was. My own federation was going through their own little like publicity sabotage moment where I guess they had fired one of the uh, bobsled coaches and everybody was wanting to know why. And then, you know, she had gone to the press, said she was going to wreck the sled, do all this other stuff. And so every single time I was around anywhere, everyone was like, hey, Anthony, can you tell us more about this? And I was like, no, 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 thanks. (laughs) And so because of all of that, the Federation took the girls away for a uh, retreat, for a team bonding retreat at a resort, like about an hour outside of where we were staying at the Olympic village and they left me at the village. So I had nobody from my Federation watching. Nobody came to support me. Nobody really gave a hoot as to like my race day and like what was happening. And then, um, so my, you know, the gentleman from Puerto Rico met my father. He showed up at the track. He was there watching me. He took videos, he took photos, you know, like, so he really became someone that like when it came down to it, I was like, you know, I think I'll make the I think I'll make the switch in the transition. And so I've yet I've yet to compete for Puerto Rico because I just recently officially switched to their team last season, but because of financial reasons, I couldn't I couldn't make it. And so this year I've worked hard, you know, like I've made some contacts and now COVID kind of put a damper on a lot of that as well. So um so everything is, like I said, kind of up in the air. But that's, that's the position that I find myself in now. And I have the chance to make history once again as the first athlete to compete in the same sport representing two small countries that have never had a Winter Olympic presence. And so that's what I take from it. That's what I'm moving in. And that's my motivation, you know, and, and the simple fact that I love, like I said, I love what I do. And it's just like the fact that I've made it to an Olympic Games, there's no better feeling than that. And that's the feeling that I really want to achieve and like, be a part of again and um i'm willing to do anything and go through anything to get there and so um 
you know, that's, that's the goal. And, you know, like that's, that's where I find myself now. And so it's just taking it one day at a time to see what each day has, (laughs) I guess, from this point on. Right. And how was this transition, you know, uh, taken back in Jamaica? Like you mentioned that, you know, either Jamaicans are going to be extremely loyal or extremely, you know, hating you for this. How how was this, uh, you know, dealt with back, back in Jamaica? I mean, like people hated me, you know, like I got a bunch of messages from people being like, hey, so we want to know why you decided to become a traitor and leave uh, Jamaica. And, you know, uh, you know, we already spoke to your federation. Now we want your side of the story. So um, I didn't I didn't say anything. And that was the hardest thing for me was to not like open up and like let everything out because I wasn't about to get into a war, uh, a war of words with people that never cared for me from the beginning, you know, everyone was always about preserving the, um, the bobsled title and name and brand. And, you know, when I initially said that I wanted to leave, nobody wanted, nobody got back to me. Nobody said anything. People just kind of left it hanging there. They were, and it literally came down to the last minute, but what they didn't realize was that my manager has ties to the IBSF where he dropped a line to the assistant of the COO of the entire organization. And then he said, Hey, we have a problem. This guy's been wanting to be released for the past seven months from Jamaica and they're holding out because the deadline was um, September 30th and it was September 29th that this was happening. And so the lead lady, she stepped in and she's like, what's the problem? She's like, this thing has been going on for how long? She's like, unless the athlete's doing something to prevent you, she's like, this shouldn't be this, this shouldn't be this way. And so we spoke, um, I spoke to my federation and like the guy who was giving me all that headache and all that trouble and stuff. And like, I mean, like granted, it's just like, there were times during the season because we had these very hideous contracts that we had to sign these athlete agreements that basically to not get into like what was in it, but essentially it was sign your life away and slide with no say, no control, no benefit, no nothing and slide or don't sign it and go home. And so I signed mine and I just did that. And so like when I ran out of money, the Federation was just like, well, we're not going to give you anything. You said that you were going to pay for it. If you can't pay for it, then you don't, we're not going to, you're like, that's not our problem. So I broke the contract. You know, I started doing some deals, but it's just like, you know, it wasn't because like, you know, I was a rebel or a renegade. It was because I was literally starving and it was either, you know, I'm either going to die here or like I need to figure out a way to like keep myself going. And like whenever I did do that, I give myself credit because I they never had to come to me and be like, Anthony, you we heard that you did this. I always called them and I said, hey, I just need to tell you something. I said, I know that the thing says this, but I said, here's my situation. I said, I have no money. I said, a sponsor dropped out on me. I said, I can't control someone else's money. And so I said, so this is what I did. And I said, I know that violates it, but I said, I'd rather you hear it from me than have it be said about this. And they said, you told us from the beginning of the year, you're not going to be an issue. You're not going to be a problem. I said, I'm not trying to be. I said, but every single time I come to you, you put me to this person. This person can't do anything to me. So they send me here. And I said, I'm running in circles and time is running out. So I said, I had to do something. And I said, on the positive side, I said, I'm here to keep myself accountable to you because you're the people who are in charge of me. And I said, I want to at least show that I can take responsibility when I do something wrong. And so they said, let's turn a new leaf. Let's do this. So after that exchange, I tried my hardest to keep my nose clean, but it was just like certain people were looking for any type of thing that they could blow up into a bigger issue to like, you know, make it a big deal as to like, oh, this is what's happening. 
here. And so, um, you know, so leaving took a little bit of, took a little bit of urge and like a little bit of like little extra motivation from people outside of the situation. It's kind of like being in an abusive relationship where you know you deserve better, but you're too afraid to leave because you're not sure if the people that you, that, that are, that want you next are going to do the same thing or if it's going to get any better and you'd rather stay in a situation where you at least know what the worst is because you're used to it. And so that's the situation that I felt that I was in. And so like when I decided to leave, you know, I guess they tried to get ahead of the story because they knew that I had a lot on them where I could be like, oh, they were unfair. They were this, they were that. And I kept my mouth shut, you know, but the, I think it was heartbreaking and it made me, it made me tear up because I did everything for them to make history, to, to represent them well. And out of the both teams, at the Olympics, the girls bobsled team was the one that left with all the scrutiny because they were accused and they almost had their Olympics stripped from them because they got found guilty of doping. And, and so like I didn't, but yet nobody from my federation came to support me, watch me practice, watch me race, offer me any help to get better. And so like when I heard them saying an article that we never believed in Anthony. We didn't feel like he had any potential from the get-go, you know, and we want to give real Jamaicans the, tra- the chance to have better their lives through sport. And Anthony, you know, we don't take anything away that he did for us, but we just never saw him advancing in the program. And I'm like, that's harsh. And I'm just like, you guys never did anything for me. You gave me a hard time about everything. And then when I finally tried to do something good, everyone was getting on my case about it. So um that was how my that's how I left but I left the best way that anyone in a situation like that could I left every reporter hanging I never returned any of their calls I never listened to any of their messages you know and I let what their narrative was I mean and the truth will eventually come out you know so I'm not sitting here you know trying to you know, throw anyone under the bus because the Puerto Ricans really appreciated that about me. And it was really hard for me to like finally come to terms with it because they're just like, look, Anthony, we know that you have every reason to go say this and act this way and feel this way, but we really respect you and appreciate the fact that when you've had every opportunity to go and be like vengeful and spiteful, you've chosen to keep remain silent and just keep getting your work done. And I said, oh, trust me. I said, there's going to come a day where I was like, I'm going to let it all out. But I said, for the time being, I was like, it just seems right now it'd be more negative and more backpedaling involved than actual progress. So I said, that's why I'm not doing anything about it. Yeah, I think I totally agree. And I think you have, you know, handled it really professionally all throughout the way. And also, I think, like you, like you mentioned, there, there may be a time in the future, but right now, definitely, I think these are the things that can may sometimes you know disrupt the preparation for any of the the seasons or the olympics and that's something that you can do without right now yeah so it's just like i'm i there's always going to be drama no matter where it comes from and so like uh this is pivotal though because of like you know how it happened where and when and like under what circumstances because i'm just like i'm at the olympics i shouldn't be getting a headache from anybody you know and so that wasn't my experience. So it's like, uh, for the time being, it's just right now, because I'd have to compete and still be around all of these people. Um, I feel like it's best for myself that when I'm trying to focus, I don't have people like coming up to me and being like, so is it true that this and this and this and blah, blah, blah. And you know, like everyone's saying this and I'm just like, 
So, yeah, I mean, like, it, it, it's still really hard for me because I just want to open up and, like, vent because sometimes, like, parts – sometimes, like, when I'm really, like, struggling with stuff, it's just, like, I feel that weighing on my chest a lot. And it's just, like – but it's hard to open up about because it won't – it doesn't make sense to people in that aren't in the sport and the people in the sport can't keep their mouth shut. So it's just, like, learning how to suppress it in healthy ways and not just ignore it to where it starts affecting my relationships with coaches, teammates, and other people. So. And you wouldn't want to be performing in, you know, under such a cloud all the time. I think it it does take away uh, from time to time. So I think you've been totally professional all throughout this and which is why I think the, the, the Puerto Rican Federation also appreciates uh, your way of being. Yeah, so I mean, like, I I won't lie, it, it's not it's not an easy thing to do, but um, it's like a game of chess, you know. I I know that if I make this move now, I may be surrendering a bigger a bigger move that might have more of an impact on me later on. It's a biblical term, you know, like, and it's a spiritual term where you know there's a season for everything, a time to speak and a time to be silent, you know, like, and with every with every you know like person that believes in anything out there, there's it's universal. It's universal where it's just like, you know, good things happen to people that do good things. Even if it doesn't, you know, like you've still got to be, you've still got to be humble and and respectful through the whole process, which is the hard part. But that's the part that, you know, when things are happening, what I've realized is that when you're polite professional and things start blowing up around you, you don't really have to defend yourself as much because more people will speak up for you because they're like, that's not fair. You can't keep doing that to this person because you know, so that's that's what I've realized. So I have a good federation now that they believe in me. Um, they're a lot poorer than the uh, Jamaicans were because they don't have any type of winter brand or anything to do. Um, but they, they are giving me a chance. And with that chance, I've told them multiple times that I want to make this something that benefits both of us. I don't want to make this something that you regret. So because of that, you know, I, I stay off of, you know, social media tit for tats, you know, like I don't engage in anything. And, you know, I only speak and share when I know it's platforms that can help bring more information and people can understand that I'm not just here throwing people under the bus. Cause I'm just like, look, people that do that to themselves. I was like, it's obvious. And I was like, they sabotage themselves better than I could. So I'm like, I'll let them do that themselves. <laughs> right. And now that you're backed by a federation that, you know, is definitely more supportive and appreciative of your talent, what sort of ambitions and goals have you set yourself, you know, for the upcoming seasons and particularly the 2022 Winter Olympics? I'm just having fun. You know, I was like, too many people are stretched out and like, you know, I mean, like granted I'm competitive, like don't get it twisted. I mean, like I want to beat everybody on every, on every single day. But I mean, like, I also know that once I crossed the finish line for the last time that day, I was like, I got to leave the results there. I can't carry them with me. All I can do is just know that I want to do better and then apply that in different ways to focus harder and do better in the next, in the next one. But, you know, like I said, I have a chance to make history again for the other half of my family and be the first person in Olympic history to represent both nationalities in a winter Olympic games. And that's a big deal, you know? And I mean, like, it's nothing that I like, you know, shake my head at or like hang my head in, in shame about, but um, I, I look at it as a chance to show people one that it's just like hard work 
being professional, polite, and a good person will get you a lot further than just having someone with a lot, just having, just being someone with a lot of money. Because like, if you're a mean person and you have a lot of money, you're just a mean person. You're just a rich, mean person, you know? And um, people, people will only come around you because they want stuff from you or they, you know, they just want to be used by you. But me, it's just like, um, I try to help anyone that I can along the way, as long as it's not pulling me away from what I want to do. And, um, you know, I get to travel the world, you know, sadly it's in the winter. So, I mean, like every time I want to go like, look at something is buried under like four or five feet of snow, but it's still fun. And, um, you know, I haven't seen any of my friends in two years. So, I mean, like, I'm really hoping that I get the opportunity to do that, but you know, a lot of things have to fall in place, uh, before that happens. Like I need sponsorships. Like I need a new sled this year. Like I need funding to like get from point A to point B. I need a coach, you know, like I need all of these things and, you know, um, hopefully some things work out and, you know, go from there, but I'm just, I'm just taking it a day at a time. That's all I can. <laughs> right. And, you know, maybe, you know, a little premature to talk about this, but do you have any specific plans post retirement, any, anything that you'd want to now focus on now that, you know, the career is, uh, at least the, the, the athletics career is, you know, past you. Um, I mean, definitely. I mean, like I, I've had job offers that could literally like get me amongst like a lot of professionals doing a lot of things, but it's just like, you know, I've said no to those now temporarily, but I know that they'll still be there. And it's just like, I'm not really concerned about my future out after the sport is done because like being in this sport has opened up so many doors already that it's like, uh, I'm not really concerned like what could happen if things don't work out. You know, and like I said, a lot of people vouch for me because they're just like, oh, yeah, if you need help, just let us know. Like, we we love you. We love your personality. We love how kind and respectful you are. So if you ever need anything, you know, and that means a lot to me that people would do that just because, you know, in today's world where nobody can really be polite or kind, you know, people are willing to, like, put themselves out there to be like, hey, if we can ever help, all you got to do is just ask. And I know professionally that there's never been anyone that has ever gotten anywhere or anything in life without the help of somebody else. These self-made, these self-proclaimed made people have never done anything from scratch. I was like, they may have started something, an idea from scratch, but they've needed a team. They now have a board. They've needed investors. They've needed donors. They've needed supporters to get them to where they are. And so I take any ounce of help that I can, and I give all the respect, and I give all the glory to my Savior, Jesus Christ, and anyone that he brings along the way. And, you know, I do all of this knowing that I don't really know what's going to happen because, like, after this whole year with COVID and everything, it's just, like, everything that most people have been putting their – uh you know, putting all of their security and it's just like, that can't cut it anymore. So I'm just like, when everything else fails, I was just like, what do you have left? And it's just like, it's people. So, you know, I'm polite, respectful, and, you know, like very, very, you know, like high energy to a lot of people that, cause I, I love people, you know, and not many people can tolerate others. And like, I just like, you know, meeting new people, you know, I was really, you know, pleased when you reached out to me and I hope it's been a pleasant experience for you as it's been for me. And, you know, I hope that, you know, we get to do more work together in the future and that maybe you will have this other podcast again once I've uh, gone to my second Olympics. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I look forward to that uh, already. And, you know, it, it's been a real pleasure having you on the on the podcast today, no, knowing more about you as an athlete and more importantly, as a person. And I think I definitely concur with, you know, people from your network that you're, you know, you have a an aura and an energy around you that is really infectious. And that's, you know, that is something that, you know, 
Oh, that's good. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and it you know talking to you, I think it has reaffirmed my belief that you know athletes are not just born, but athletes are made through hard work and perseverance. And I think you are an epitome of that. I appreciate that so much. So I mean, there's there's always two sides to every story. And like one thing that I tell a lot of people is like everyone, you know tries to make people like myself, especially like Olympians, like seem like we're immortal. It's just like, well, you're an Olympian. I was like, yeah, I was like, but at the end of the day, I was like, that's just a title. I'm still a human. Like I still cry. I still get angry. I still have moments where I need to like go and apologize to people because I overreacted. I was like, I'm human. I was like, and if anything, you know, there, there's, there, there's more that goes into this because I was like, you guys just bask in the moment. You don't see the years of tears, hard work. And like, times when all the doors were slamming in my face and being told no repeatedly and then having everyone want to like ride your coattail the minute you know like something big happens for you because you were the only one left that decided not to quit and to find another way so I'm like those are the stories that make these like good because everyone will look and be like oh you know like from the outside all you see me is like oh I lift weights and I run and then I like leave for the winter you know but it's just like there's more to that it's like like you said I'm I'm my own logistics manager I do my own social media campaigning I do my own sponsorship proposals I do all of my meetings I do all of my phone calls emails correspondence you know like outreaches you know like uh you uh what else um like bookings you know like speeches talks I like I have to do all of that for myself <laughs> And so, like, that's the untold story that nobody really hears until you sit down and you're just like, oh, so let's talk about, let's talk about this. And see, like, there's beauty in conversation, you know, because now I've known more about you and you've heard a little bit more about me. And I'm hoping that after this whole worldwide pandemic, people have a deeper appreciation for each other, you know, and that people learn how to have conversations where people can learn differences but still have a healthy respect for one another rather than just telling people that because you believe a certain way or you live a certain way or you look a certain way that this is how you're supposed to think and feel and this is how this is what the truth is and you just have to take it you know um i've never been to your country but i've met plenty of people from your country and my whole opinion is is just like i am the only window to puerto rico and jamaica that people may see so I need to be the best version of myself so that people don't make it bad for everybody else or people don't, um, you know, see it as any way else so that, you know, people get a fair chance so that when people say like when people hear like, oh, I'm Indian or I'm Jamaican or Puerto Rican, they don't look and be like, oh, all of you Indians or all of you Jamaicans and blah, 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 are all the same, you know, because I feel like a lot of people ruin it, but not enough people like actually stand up to like make it something good and enjoyable. <laughs> Right. And I think I totally agree. And I think it, you know, the, the onus lies on us to actually present the, the right account uh, on these areas. Okay. So, you know, it's been a, an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast today, Anthony. I wish you the very best for your upcoming season and your, you know, your, your goal of go, going to the Olympics once again. I, I And I wish you easier logistical uh, arrangements this time. So I think again and uh, show us your, your you know uh, the true performance that you are capable of I appreciate that Niraj thank you so much for for having me as a guest and like I said I hope this isn't the last time that we get to uh, share next time uh, 
next time hopefully we'll be talking pre-olympics and then post-olympics when when things when things work out well but until then you know keep smiling keep you know keep making the world a better place through conversation and i hope that things really start to blossom for you and your channel thank you thank you so much anthony <laughs> no problem my friend That sure was an insightful conversation with Anthony that shed some light on aspects of being an elite athlete. It also reiterated how important it is to have a country federation that supports your sporting ambitions. Anthony has treaded all the Jamaican federation related controversy like a true professional and now having the Puerto Rican federation supporting him, I truly wish him the best for the Beijing 2022 Winter Olympics. That's it for this episode folks. Thank you for tuning into the Gifted Podcast. I have been your host Neeraj Mulani. A gentle reminder, you can find us as The Gifted on your favorite podcast platforms including Apple, Spotify and Google. Keep following us on Instagram, Facebook and YouTube as The Gifted Podcast and on Twitter as The Gifted Pod so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes. Thank you once again for listening. and i'll see you next week with another special episode until then stay well and keep your masks on